here we are right now <laughs> with some more words to share. I hope you're not in a hurry. I hope you're doing good. Hope you're enjoying your day. Feeling all right? Thinking clearly? Relaxed? Open? Interested? Poised with zest for life? <laughs> all the good things. Wow. I mean, I'm just so... Uh, I just can't stop smiling sometimes. Uh, I just don't know where to begin. Maybe I should just sit... I. I think sometimes I should just sit here and smile, but then you wouldn't be able to hear that, would you? So we we venture forth with words nonetheless. So today, in this conversation, here, now, together, you and me, we're going to be answering the 64 most fascinating questions. This is so fun. This is so good. I love this so much. <laughs> this is one of my favorite hobbies, which of course is solophacy. And I got these questions from Leo. And Leo is a solophacer. And, well, he's a lot of things, really. He's a personality. He's a character. He's a hell of a guy. And maybe later on, in this conversation, we can get into some more thoughts and opinions about the personality. But basically, all you need to know is that he's a talking head on the internet. And he has this episode, this Solophacy episode, which is titled The 64 Most Fascinating Questions. So in this conversation today, we are going to answer those questions. We're actually going to have this as a kind of response to that episode. And I will link to that episode in either the description or wherever you're listening on this. And I don't think it should be that hard to find. If you search for Leo Gura and the 64 most fascinating questions... Um, I'm sure you'll find he's quite searchable. And his website is actualized.org. And check it out. I mean, I, I, sort of, I sort of hesitate to say check it out because, well, I mean, what, what harm can it do with checking something out? I mean, you can always find something new and form your own opinion. See if it resonates with you or not. And maybe some more about, maybe I'll talk more about my hesitancy later on, if we have time, if I feel like it, I don't know. But really, to get into this, I mean, <laughs> it's so good. I just, I love how Leo has done this and I love his whole attitude behind this. And it's just, uh, it's, it's so amazing that you can find someone who thinks similar to you. And my attitude is to have it as a game, to have it as a bit lighthearted, to have it as a bit of a sort of just a back and forth and a little tickle of the mind. And really, it is a bit cheeky to say, oh, we're answering the questions. Like he's only come up with the questions, but oh, we actually have the answers. And 
that is cheeky, but you know, I mean it in good spirit. I mean it in a kind of conversational way. I don't mean to put myself above or put myself out as someone who has the answers. Really, we're trying to demonstrate both sides of solophacy, which is not just the questions, but also the answers. And really, all of these questions, they're ongoing questions. They're timeless questions. They're questions that you ask again and again and again. And my answers that I'm coming up with today depend on a whole bunch of things, like what I've been thinking about recently, what I've been doing recently, what I have been working on or interested in, how I've been having my attitudes and my emotions and all the rest of it. And it also depends on how I am right now. It also depends on how the words come out. It also depends on who I'm speaking to. How it resonates depends on who's hearing it, which, of course, I don't have much control over. I don't have much of an idea of, which could be actually an advantage. And some of these answers are quite solid in me. They're very much a regular thing that comes up over and over again, and it's quite clear how the answer sits within me. Others are more elusive. They're more fluid. They're more non-permanent, we could say. And I guess for some of those, you'll be able to hear how unconfident or unclear I am with those. And then there's also the element of spontaneity and freshness. So the freshness would be like, How you answer a question is different every time, and yet it resonates truly to you on a deeper level every single time. And real solophices are amazing at this. Someone who's a really strong, heavy thinker, someone who is like a spiritual seer, someone who's like an outstanding visionary guru sort of person can do this in a really heavy way. They can do it with such such aliveness, such such vibrancy. It's like it's it's always different and yet it's always the right answer. It's always the true answer. Now, of course, there is also the personal and the a priori answers. So the personal is, well, What's your personal opinion? How does the answer fit with you? And you just say, well, that's your perspective. And that's basically what we're working with. Basically, all of what we're talking about here and all the answers I'll give are basically like that. And then the a priori side is, well, what do humans say? What have we come up with as a collective? What does the tradition of antiquity say? in response to these questions. And when you're giving that sort of answer, you would say, oh, so-and-so gave this answer. Socrates had this answer. Aristotle had this answer. Nietzsche had this answer. Heidenberg or whoever. And then you can say, well, why does it have to be that sort of traditional meaning of the word philosopher person that is giving the answer? Can't you reference someone 
culturally, like someone who is famous or a musician or a novelist or something like that. And if you're saying someone like, oh, I have a friend or a personal friend, then you start to see, well, that's how it becomes blurred between, like this this difference between a priori and personal starts to become blurred because I can say, well, we have this question and Socrates answered this question like this. And you can say, well, Socrates lived two and a half thousand years ago and that's very much a canonized or traditionalized answer, which is sort of set within human knowledge and literature. But then I can say, well, I have this answer and this is my personal opinion and that's the two sides of the scale. But just beyond the personal answer is, well, my old uncle, he came up with this. Or my old music teacher, a music teacher I had in high school, said this to this answer. Or maybe an obscure, uh, what would we say, an obscure academic or an, or an academic who is not quite well known. And, and then you, you're starting to see that, you're starting to get where I'm coming from with the, this, this gradations of the personal and the impersonal. I hope you do. I hope that's clear. And just keep that in mind as we answer these, because we'll have a whole bunch of them. So <laughs> I think that's enough to work with as like a sort of structure to go into this. And if there's anything else that I've forgotten and it comes up along the way, then I'll just tell you as I remember it and as it applies to each of these. I think, I mean, another thing that's coming to mind is attitude, but it's probably better to demonstrate that. Uh, So basically what we've got or what I'd like to do to warm up is to go into some ABC solophacy questions. This is like ABC philosophy. And these are old questions that are always around. They always will be around. And when you do philosophy in university and you do the history of Western philosophy then or Greek philosophy, then these are the sorts of questions you come up with. Then we will go through all of Leo's questions and discuss some of those. And then at the very end, I've got some of my own questions. And you'll see they're qualitatively different. They're quite different. And it does reveal a lot about your paradigm as to what sort of questions you're at. Or, or it reveals a lot about your perspective and where you're at as to what you're at in terms of... As to what questions you ask, I should say. The, there's an easy way to say this. The questions you ask reveal what you're into. Simple as that. So... Uh, <sighs> I mean, another another thing I wanted to say was that the broadest, most ma- macro vision of this reveals that humans have a yearning. There's a yearning in each of us. And that yearning manifests itself in many ways, and we call it many things. 
We might call it wanting to know who we are, wanting to know what existence is, wanting to know God, wanting to know where things came from, wanting to experience more. All of these things, they are a yearning. It's a kind of existential yearning. Some people have that more than others. That's just the case that some people are deeper in that quality and it pecks away at them. It nags on them much more than others. It keeps coming up. And if we were to look at this in a multiple intelligence, multiple intelligence perspective, then you would say that that's the existential intelligence line of development. And how far also people go with the yearning, where it takes them, what it leads them to, well, that's the pantheon of human experience. There's a huge range there amongst each of us. And some people are outliers. Some people really go all the way. And those are the people that are, well, they're cultural phenomenons. They're cultural icons. And they resonate with very large audiences because they hit something deep. So keep that in mind that with all these questions... There is one underlying thing, and that is the yearning towards something. And that must remain broad. It must remain as a general thing. You can't, you can't ever equate that into specifics. You can't ever put your finger on that. It will always remain as the mysterious, as the mystical. So... Now, to get into this, okay, so let's do the warm-up round. This is ABC philosophy, or ABC solophacy, as I've been calling it. Does free will exist? Yes, it does not. So I'll offer an answer as well to each of these as we go through. And I'll pause a little bit just to see, you know, what can come up for you? Have a think about it in that silence, in that moment, and just see how you would answer it. Now, does free will exist? I love, I mean, my answer here comes really from Christopher Hitchens, and he has a great way of answering it because someone asked him, does free will exist? And he said, of course we do. We have no choice. And this is very funny, of course. It just gets onto the whole thing of the whole attitude of <laughs> what it's like to debate free will. And I, I just laugh now when I hear that question, does free will exist? <laughs> and I mean, there's just so many things. It's, it's, it's almost like, I mean, one way I described it to a friend was free will or the question of free will to the philosopher, is like the blues to the jazz musician. So the jazz musician can play a blues. He plays it in his own way. He turns up at the jam session and he says, oh, let's play a blues, and everyone knows what he's talking about. And it depends on his own wordsmith ability as to how the notes come out, just like the musician's technical ability depends on how the notes come out. 
So free does free will exist is like an ABC sort of. It's, it's a classic question and it's always going to be there. And perhaps a deeper answer than just the tongue-in-cheek answer would be to say, well, free will is relative to awareness and autonomy is nested within the complete structure of the self. And those two answers I plug into arcs to answer, which is basically saying free will is incremental depending on what surrounding circumstances there are within your phenomenal experiencing. So maybe maybe for me to actually, I, I can already see myself getting sucked into the, <laughs> I can see myself getting falling down the rabbit hole. So if I, if I go on any further, we'll be stuck on this question for the rest of the day. So maybe we can have a conversation on just free will and we can go through all of the literature and we can look at all the different things because, of course, Sam Harris has a really famous book on free will as well. And, and there's a whole bunch of people that, uh, I mean, there, there's so much. Don't get me started. So that's, does free will exist? Does God exist? Well, it depends on what you mean by God. And my answer is that I haven't checked the phone book. Does God exist? Well, is he in the phone book? Why are we here? We're trying to get somewhere else. Why does anything exist? And the answer I've got here is for the Buddhists. Nothing exists. Reality is an illusion. Where do we go when we die? Where, where do we go when we die? We go back to where we came from. What was before birth? The same thing as before death. What is truth? Yes. What is love? Everything. What is reality? Alive. Where do thoughts come from? The same place light comes from. Now, don't be too quick with this one. Where does light come from? Because you could say, well, light comes from the sun. Or light bulbs. Or candles or any other form of electricity or otherwise. But don't be too quick. Really look into it. Where does the light come from? Does it come from the light bulb? 
or does it come from the electricity in the light bulb? And if it comes from the electricity, where does the electricity come from? Is it from the power point or along the wire all the way back to the power station? And is it from the power station or is it from the coal that they're burning? And where does the coal come from? From the train that it's delivered on? Or the ship that ships it to the train station, to the train dock? Or from the ground that it's dug up from? And how exactly did it get into the ground? And then the same line can be done with the sun. Does it come from the surface of the sun? Or does it come from the chemical reactions, the huge nuclear, atomic nuclear reactions that are happening within the sun? The sun's composition is a rather complex thing. I imagine it's quite, you've got to have quite a lot of scientific knowledge to wrap your head around that one, to really go deep into that. I mean, most of us walk around with the idea that the sun is like this big fire, right? Some sort of furnace and it burns and that's how we get light. But really, there's a whole vast array of physics and complexes that can go into understanding how the sun works. So that's a little bit about the question, where do thoughts come from? They come from the same place light comes from. Okay, let's continue on with some more rapid fire. What is the good life? It is a feeling. What does it mean to be a good human being? To cook well under pressure. So there's a corollary question with this, which is, what does it mean to be a good human bean? As in, eat your beans, rather than a human being. So that's a little bit of a, another slapstick one. What is bravery? Standing strong in the face of fear. What is honour? Living for something that will outlast you or something that is bigger than you. What is duty? Where commitment and strength meet. What is piety? To be of the soul. What is spirit? To be of everything. And lastly, what is life? Happening. So you see how a lot of these questions, you can answer them with just a quick answer. And many of them beg more than just the quick answer. 
And that's really the f- philosophical dialogue. That's why the philosophers would sit around talking all day, because they had something in them that would discuss and open to something new rather than just coming up with an answer. It was an ongoing thing. And they really wanted to find the heart of the matter, to build the juice, to build the meaning for themselves. And so they would go back and forth. They would look at different parameters. They would look at different scenarios. They would put their answers into different situations. They would talk about their own personal experiences. They would challenge each other and so forth. And basically that is philosophical dialogue or philosophical inquiry. And that's why all those books, all those, all those old Greek philosophy books, they're, always, they're, all, they're all the same, really. It's one person who's talking to another or to a couple of people. It's, it's a conversation. They're just in a room talking and it's huge amounts of dialogue. It's not like it's action-based narrative. <laughs> it's not like there's forward momentum action happening. So that's the warm-up round. That's our ABC philosophy. So let's get into the 64 fascinating, most fascinating questions, most interesting questions that Leo has come up with. Now, a lot of these are actually very similar to the ABC philosophy questions. And in a way, they are the same. It's the same question. It's just that Leo has had his own take on it or his own personality or his own ideas on it. So keep that in mind and you'll see how they're different and how they're the same as we go through them. So let's answer these and I'll continue with the quick answers the sort of some of the cheeky slapstick slapstick kind of answers and others I'll expand on depending on what resonates with me as we go through whatever stands out and whatever I think needs a bit more of an explanation so here we go this is the 64 fascinating question he's got it into sections as well we should put it into his section so first up is metaphysical so this is about reality How come existence exists at all? So I can scratch my bum. What is existence? It is here and now. How is existence related to non-existence? It's a temperamental relationship. Why is reality structured as it is? It is this way, so it can be. Are there other possible ways reality can be ordered other than our own? 
And for this I've put, yes, and there is only one reality. So this is a bit of a mind twister. This is a bit of a trick question. Because you have to say, what is reality by definition before you can really answer it? Are there multiple realities? And usually the way I think about this is that I say there are different worlds rather than different realities. So reality is only one thing and there are different worlds. And even in that, I can see that there are limits because do you call a solar system a world? Not really. It's probably too far out of it. I think usually more it's like going to another country is like being in another world. And that's really where the discussion happens, right? Where do you draw the parameters? What do you define as the qualities of a world and the qualities of a reality? And from there, it just opens up into its, its complexities and its discussions. Why are the laws of physics the way they are? Because of the nature of the noosphere. So the noosphere is human thought, and it has a relationship to the physical sphere and the biosphere and the theosphere. These are huge spheres of existence that are interconnected, interrelated, and it's not exactly right to say that we start with physics or the physical realm and then we put our mathematical equations and laws of physics onto it. It is the case that, and, and this is how you... This is, this is the spooky thing that you realize when you start to get into physics. You start to see that there is a kind of harmony. There's a kind of, dis you, you discover a law of nature rather than inventing it or creating it as an explanation. And it's, and it's a mysterious thing because it goes back and forth. And there is also not just harmony, but there's also disharmony. There are things that are trying to be discovered, or you can try to discover things that aren't there. Galileo quite famously tried to get his systems of squares and circles and triangles and measurements to work in harmony with how the planets move, and it, he, it, he didn't do it. He couldn't work it out. He was banging his head against the wall, and in the end he had to give up. So... Complexity and harmony and disharmony exist through all of the spheres. And the laws of physics are both something mystical and also something very real and tangible. And it's about here that we get into the discussion of, well, where's the line between science and mysticism? Where's the line between philosophy and knowledge. Which comes first, consciousness or matter? And my answer to that is, the chicken or the egg? Does consciousness come out of matter, or does matter occur within consciousness? 
And really, this just depends on when outside is in and inside is out. And that's a kind of abstract thought. That's a kind of abstract answer. To know that sometimes the inside is outside and the outside is sometimes inside is abstract understanding. And it's not really that much of a stretch, right? Because we can say that you've got your jumper on inside out. So if you wake up in the morning, you put your clothes on, you put your jumper on, your sweater or whatever you call it, your t-shirt, your jacket, and it's inside out, you've got the seams showing and the tag showing out. Now that assumes that there's a right way and a wrong way to wear the jumper. Because you could say that, well, the outside as a descriptive word is the side that's on the outside. So when you put your jumper on inside out, it's just that we say that side is on the outside and the outside is now on the inside, so it's the right way out. It's just that we normally have these behind structures, these structures behind the statement, which is that or or these assumptions or these presuppositions, which is that the tag should always be facing inwards or the seams should always be facing inwards. And if you really look into those, then you start to see how each definition and each word is connected to the things behind it. So to answer, does consciousness come out of matter or occur within consciousness, well, that's just like what is in and what is out. And there's also an element of, there's also an element there of what's coming out of something. And that's a kind of directionality rather than a description word. That's that's a bit of a, that, like I can really feel it's a brain twister, right? <laughs> you can see how these these get into the, the mind and start, start squiggling around with tangles <laughs> and and of course I'd love to spend all day just on one of these I mean you really could go into that because we've got directionality assumptions of time assumptions of meaning values opening up and a whole bunch of things that we could just flesh out just in this one question does consciousness come out of matter or occur within con- like like le- leaving the word aside, leaving consciousness aside, we could say we could say like creativity. Does creativity come out of matter, or does it occur with? Does matter occur within creativity? So now we're just replacing that word consciousness with creativity, and it's still the same sort of thing, right? Cre- creation, or well, rather than creativity, that just means. That, that's too much of an emphasis on like it's a person doing it. We should say creation. So does creation come out of matter or does matter occur within creation? That's another, that's another twisted one, isn't it? That's a, like, I don't know if the word consciousness and creation can really be interchanged like that so 
neatly. I mean, it's, it's, it's not neat. It doesn't appear to be neat to me right now. But it does reveal something about this thing of being within something or coming out of something. And that's really what this question gets into. Geez, that's a real, that's a real twister of a question, isn't it? Let's move on. Maybe we can do a whole conversation on that, but let's move on. What is matter, energy, space, and time? They are one. What is outside the universe? Is it infinite or finite? And why? And, then, and the answer to this is silence, yes, and it's all for you. So what is outside the universe? Silence. Is it infinite or finite? The answer is yes. And why? Because of you. Because it's all for you. It all comes back to you. And that really is too much of a realization to explain in words. What existed before the Big Bang? The Big Small. I guess I should say the Small Bang. <laughs> Right? If I was really being cheeky about it, it's the Big Bang and the Small Bang. But I like the idea of the Big Small. I like the idea of smallness and bigness coming together to create the Big Bang. How does the material interact with the immaterial? Well, in a way, only a few can see. Another way of understanding this would be that the material and the immaterial interact in the same way that solids affect liquids, liquids affect gases, and gases affect solids. So you can really get a sense of this if you go to the beach or you go to the coast somewhere because there you have the, the land, the water and the air. So you have gas, solid and liquid all together and you start to see how they're interacting because does the land affect the sea or does the sea affect the land? And if you really look, if you really check and take some time to observe what's going on in any coastal region, you see that there's a kind of erosion. Rocks fall down. Cliffs break because of the waves, because of the water crashing onto them. And then you can look at the air and you can say, well, how does the ocean move? Why does it move this way? And you notice that on a more windy day, the water sprays more, the waves are big, sort of thing. Now, don't get this wrong that there's, it's not, it's not a one-way street. 
It's not that the wind is the first cause and then it affects the water and then it affects the land. Not at all. And if you were to really get into the study of, what do you call it? I've forgotten the word. Weather studies, meteorology, I think it's called. If you really get into that study, you would start to see how it's not a first cause. Because how the land is in its temperature affects how the winds are. And so on and so forth. So it's that... Like, I don't know enough about it, right? My my knowledge is so limited. I I feel like I have a pea-sized brain at the moment trying to... Tr- trying to describe it like i need i need the weatherman to be here we need to in- interview the weatherman and say what comes first the the wind or the water and we could well i i would imagine he might say something like the chicken or the egg answer but he, th- there would be rules right there would be things that would determine why and how it's not like the wind can affect the land in any sort of way Perhaps another image that would be better to look at it would be, say, well, the wind affects trees. And the trees are very animated, and yet trees are solid. Wind affects the sand. And so on. I mean, just just to just try and explain all this in words is really quite futile. All you need to do is go to the coast and look around for a bit, and you'll see... So that's how the material interact with the immaterial. Now there's another there's another rabbit hole here which is instead of looking at this in terms of the biophysical sphere you can look at paranormal phenomenon like how does the man suck cancer out of someone's body or how does the priest or the nun make a certain vision appear or an object appear and these sorts of religious things. And there's a whole literature there. There's a whole history there, but I don't think that's much of a rabbit hole we need to go down to. In in that case, even in that case, the same answer that I, my original answer still applies, which is that it's, that they interact in a way only few people can see. So, Let's just plant that as a kind of another thing that we can go down deeper later if we feel to. What governs the possible and the impossible in the universe? Chance. What sets limits on the universe? the same thing that creates location. What governs emergent properties, for example, atoms and molecules? The evolution of spirit. How can emergent properties Arise out of nowhere. The same way they go nowhere. 
What makes a thing a thing? What is an object? For example, a single thing or multiple things. A boundary or a label. Does reality have a bottom-most scale? For example, lower than atoms. Does reality have a topmost scale? Higher than planets and universes, for example. Are there limits or do the levels go infinitely up and down? And the answer is, scale is relative. And this is so interesting. I mean, this is such an amazing insight. Because it, it, looks, like, it looks like humans are right in the middle. The size of a human is smack bang in the middle. And that sort of makes me feel quite special makes me feel like there's something very special about the human exist the existence of a human because there is a never ending scale down i mean it goes much lower than atoms we already know that much and it sort of seems like if you're a scientist you're either going in one direction or the other or you you specialize in one or the other you're either a quantum physicist or a, what would the other be, a theoretical physicist or an astrophysicist. And it's just a real mind twist, isn't it? To think that we are in the exact middle of that. And it's a thing that's in the middle that has the awareness of the situation that we're in. I think the size of humans, like another way to look at this is why are humans the size they are? Can you imagine a world where humans are smaller? Like imagine, imagine all humans on average were the size of a Tyrannosaurus Rex or a bus or a whale. Or just some large, just some large size. And imagine how different the world would be. Makes you think about our architecture, our transport, our infrastructure. And then the same, imagine if humans were ants. Imagine if they were the size of an insect. And there's a very famous movie, a funny movie, great movie really, called Downsizing, where Matt Damon gets shrunk down into the tiny person so that he can live a lavish life. And <laughs> of course, you have to you have to set aside all the sort of laws of physics and biology to appreciate that movie, to enjoy that movie, because Really, with this thought experiment, imagine if humans were larger or smaller. It doesn't work. We can only be the size we are. It can only work if we are the size we are. 
And you see that. I hope you see that. It's like it just it just wouldn't work. We can only it's 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 like the more you question why are things the way they are, you either become more and more neurotic about how they're not the way you think they should be, or you realize more and more that it can only be the way that it can be. And that actually is a way of answering all of these questions. That's actually the kind of, that, 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 that's a kind of ultimate answer. Why are things the way they are? Well, they are just because they are. And that's the Zen answer as well. That's how Zen arrived at the conclusion of philosophy. And of course, there's also personal stuff, right? Because you can bring in the whole motivational speaker, personal development paradigm. You say, well, why, why is my life the way it is? And maybe that doesn't mix. Maybe trying to answer a personal development problem with a spiritual answer is not quite right. It's, there's, there's too much of a stretch there. We need to keep those separate. But that's a little bit that comes from just understanding the scale. And then another side of this is scales are really just measuring devices. And to say that atoms are smaller than solar systems is really a matter of perspective. And that's not a kind of... See, See, this is tricky to go into. This is... It's not quite right. I don't want to get into like a postmodern thing of like, oh, it depends on where you are. But it does come back to... Or what it comes back to is that humans are in the situation to see from where they are because of what they are and because of the position that they are in. So let's move on. That's a that's a real that's another real one to struggle with, but let's move on. Does the evolution of the universe have a purpose? If so, where does it lead to? And for this I've answered yes. It is right here in this place. Does external reality exist at all? And the answer is yes, it exists inside. What is God? What would the concept of God entail? And for this I've said that God is, or the concept of God, as opposed to God itself, is best used as a mechanism for navigating spheres of reality. So you can say, God is a concept which I employ 
as a technique in order to discover things. In order to bring myself to virtues, to bring myself to realizations, to bring myself to solace, to bring myself to peak experiences, to bring myself to emotions, relationship understandings. And that is the concept of God. That is God as a conceptual thing. God as a kind of conveyor belt or a mechanism of thought which seeps into the other areas of our being, whether it be behavior or emotions or experiences and all the rest of it. Now, God itself is another sort of problem unto it. It's a separate thing. If we say, okay, God is not a mechanism, we throw out that whole thing and we say God exists whether you know it or not or whether you like it or not, then you say that God is a thing that cannot be, whatever cannot be reduced into your own perspective. It's that which is beyond all of which you have within you, all of which you are conscious of. So it's not an idea, it's not a thought. It's not even an experience. And this is really a deep one. I mean, there's a lot in this. And there's this great book by Ken Wilber called Associable God. And in that, he talks about something like 12 different definitions of God. And there's also... On the other hand, the different definitions of the word religion. Like, how do we use this word religion? and How is it related to God? And then we can look at that through multiple paradigms. And you can see that in certain paradigms, the whole thing turns inside out. And you're saying things like, God is whatever you cannot know and do not know and will never know. And there are different mechanisms as well, like practices and arcs and levels and a whole bunch of things. So to answer this question, what is God? I mean, it's really a ongoing question. It's a lifelong question. And I'm not even entertaining any of the old sort of traditional or the history or the narrative of God. That's like a completely different thing again. If we'd look at God in terms of a narrative as a kind of personification, as a character within a story, well, then that's, that's a whole different thing. And that's massive as well. I mean, it's really, it's really too much to chew on. It's really too much to take off. What is God? What would the concept of God entail? And you could say, well, I don't believe in God. And the problem with that is, well, you've still got your paradigm. You've still got your cultural influences. 
You've still got values and virtues and vices which you're unaware of. You've still got a psychology within you that is nested in your being. It is what you are. You are what you are. And that's really the rebuttal to... That's really a rebuttal to everything. Or any any negative answer you give to a question. Because you could answer all of these in the negative, right? Does external reality exist at all? No. Does the evolution of the universe have a purpose? No. Does reality have a bottommost scale? No. What makes a thing a thing? Well, nothing. What governs emergent properties? Well, there's nothing, right? You can go through all of these and just just deny them. Just say that they're wrong questions. Just like you can say, well, what is God? You can say, well, God doesn't exist. I don't believe in God. And really the problem with all that is that you are still you. You are who you are. Are you going to argue with that? Are you going to deny that? And this is where we get into the territory of nihilism. Because answering in the negative all of these questions is basically what the nihilist does. And there's something in it as well. There is something to be understood. I mean, how we thread nihilism through all these would be... I guess we could sort of make a second pass through the whole list with nihilism in mind and see how it reveals certain things, how it's wrong in certain cases, how it ties in with everything else. And that would just be something different. That would be something more opening. Now, if you're if you're in the paradigm of the nihilist, you might want to do that in order to get out of that, right? You might want to start to sort of find your way out because you're in a bit of a slump if you're a nihilist. There's a lot of darkness that goes with the nihilist paradigm. But really, the way I'm saying it is we should look at it as another comparison, another thread. And ultimately, the answer to what is God is, well, what are you? You exist, don't you? You are who you are. Start with that. So, what is... uh, Let's get to the next question. What are thoughts? Fun. Thoughts are fun. Most of the time. (laughs) They can become a bit of a tangle, (laughs) as I'm no doubt demonstrating well enough. And then the last question for this section is, how did life start? Where did it all come from? And for this I've said, all beginnings are incremental. So, next section. This is epistemic. The study of knowledge. I hope I'm not going too fast or too slow. 
Do you like the rapid-fire ones? I like the rapid-fire ones. Some of them do need a bit more explanation. Just sort of that in itself reveals something, right? Like I said, like I said earlier, you can answer all questions with a quick answer. You can also answer all questions with a long, elaborate explanation, which sort of opens up or unravels into these huge things. And maybe that's what people want. Maybe that's what people like. But there's there's both sides. It's sort of like we're <laughs> it's sort of like we're doing both at once here. <laughs> I mean, there's no there's no real large long explanations in these. In a sense, relatively they're all short. Well, I guess you could say the length of an answer and the shortness of an answer are also relative. But Nonetheless, let's crack into it. So next section. How do we know what we know? Through sensory perception and experience. How can I know anything for certain? I'm not sure. Now, to expand a little bit on this, sureness is a feeling. Certainness is a feeling. And knowing is a phenomenon of the mind. So, to be sure of anything, to know something for certain, you could say is one of those tricky little things that sits within all of you at different times. When it occurs, it's a happening that occurs to all of you, which is why it's quite deceptive. And the best answer or the best way around this is to say that, well, we have emotions and we have a whole range of emotions throughout our life, throughout our day, throughout our week, all the rest of it. And there are different intensities, there are different varieties, and they're triggered by different things within our life, different circumstances. And the real trick is to be aware. The answer to emotions, the question of emotions, is awareness. And certainty is an emotion. So to know something for certain means you have the emotion of certainty concordantly with a certain knowing or a certain mind activity or a certain environment or a certain situation. We can look at this through mind activity or environmental. So if you can say, oh, I feel sure of myself in this environment, well, then you're saying that the emotion is down to the external situation that you're in. You're in the room or the place. And certain experiences where you, certain places where you go and you are certain, well, you're familiar with the environment. You know how to act. You know what to do. You're certain. You're sure. 
And then the other side of this would be when thoughts are happening, when you're sure of certain thoughts, which means that when the thoughts occur, you feel sure of them. And that's a bit tricky. That's sort of like one of those ones that can sort of unfound you because thoughts are sort of elusive and they're always changing and feelings are slower than thoughts and dependent on more things and they have their different way of affecting you. So even in this question, right, you can get a sense of that. All, all of this is revealed if you really listen to this question. How can you know anything for certain? Because you say, well, I'm not certain of anything. Or you think that to yourself. And then you go, well, hang on a second. That's not true at all. There are times when I feel certain of things. But then you realize, ah, oh, but that just contradicts what I've just said. But then the contradiction has proven that, well, actually there are things that I'm certain of. So there must be things that I'm certain of or not certain of, which means that I can know things for certain and I can be certain of that. But how? How is this happening? How is it that I'm in that situation where I'm certain of something? What is occurring within that? And it's sort of like this, it's sort of this back and forth of this funny thing and you can really like <laughs> you can really see how it's this uh, sort of sort of feeling that comes up how can i know anything for certain oh it's a tricky question isn't it now the next question actually ties in with this what makes justifications valid and for this i've said how it sits inside your being rather than your mind or identity. And this takes a lot of consciousness. You have to be really aware to be able to make these distinctions within yourself. When you justify something, it's valid when it sits well within your being. And that is an experience. When you say, I did this thing, whatever it is, because it was the right thing to do for me, and it's valid, and it's justified, it's because it sits within your being. It's because it resonates within you. I did the right thing. I did what I needed to do. I did what was right for me. Now, those words only ring true as to how they sit within your being. And that depends on what it is that you're talking about. That depends on how it is that you related to the action that you did. Now, the other side of this is that how something sits within your being is not the same with how it sits within your mind 
or your identity. Now, when you say, I did the thing that needed to be done, or I did the right thing, and it's not valid, it's most probably because it's of the mind that you're saying that, which means that you've got this rationalization, you've got these thoughts, you've got these stories, you've got these reasons, you've got this so-called evidence in your mind which strings out into all these different psychologies as to why it is right that you said that. And even further, still, the other side of it is that, well, it's not valid if it's part of your identity. And the most gross example of this would be to say that, well, it's right because of who I am. It's right because of my status. It's right because of my role. It's right because of my position. It's right because of my personality. It's right because that's the kind of person that I am. And you can see that these are tricky to to distinguish. To distinguish something coming from your being, from your core, is different to something coming from your identity or from your ego. And the only way you can distinguish those is by doing awareness work. It's by actually building the awareness of it within you. It's the phenomenon. It's a a sensation. And I don't want to say that it's an emotion. It's an experience that happens. And if you even are aware of this, you can start to see how it works. Because it really, all all explanations aside, it really is quite simple. Is something coming from your being or is it coming from your mind? Is something coming from your being or is it coming from your identity? And another way to say this is to say, with a follow-up question, well, how do you know that? How is that justified? How is that valid? And when something comes from your being, when something is valid, it doesn't need a reason. It doesn't need an authority. It doesn't need a story. It doesn't need an explanation. When you say, I have done the right thing, and you know it in your being, you don't need to justify it. Whereas if you've been walking around with this big story in your head, or this psychology, or this rationalization, then when someone says why, you'll start talking and you'll say, well, for this reason, and for this reason, and this example over here, and this happened over here, and I'm going to cite this case, and this reference, and this story, and this historian, and all the rest of it. And if it comes from identity, then, well, it's because of your role, or because of your standing, or some other thing. And this is very much just the personal situational 
answer. Because you can say, well, what about in the court of law or public discourse or the human conversation? Are justifications always going to be personally nested in that situation? Does that same principle apply to all of those? Or do we actually have to rely on rationality? Do we actually have to say that rationality and reasoning and storytelling and citing cases and all the rest of it are things that have real processes to them? And here, I guess, I guess the world sort of falls into two camps, which is the world that thinks and the world that is, or, or the people that think and the people that are in, involved in personal experience. Like what, what is king, thinking or personal experience? That's really the two sides of it. And the person that is into personal experience would say, what makes justifications valid? Well, the thing that I know to be true to me that doesn't need a justification. It's valid and justified if it doesn't need to be justified. It just is. It's the truth of the matter. The truth rings true. And then the other people who think would say, well, what makes justifications valid? And they'd say, well, because of rationality or because of systems thinking or because of narrative or because of history or because of argument or because of dialogue or because of process or because of levels or because of structures and all the rest of it. So there's a lot in that one. I think maybe there would be an easier way to make that distinction between the two camps. And I would even want to argue further that the personal does trump the mind. Personal experience trumps the mind. And there is an art to making justifications or valid justifications. There are degrees of depth and truth within each person. But that's just a little bit on that one question. What makes justifications valid? I really do want to say more about that, but let's move on. Let's save that for another day. Let's just plant a flag next to that rabbit hole. Next question, why do billions of people believe in God? And the answer is, because he spoke to them. And you need to understand that resonance occurs only from where you are sitting. The light shines on the side of your face depending on which way you are facing. And another way of looking at this would be to say that, well, we have experiences and we have what we say about our experiences. And Ken Wilber has a nice way of putting this. He calls this waking up and growing up. 
So waking up is your experience, the feeling, the perception, the state, the sensations within your body. And there are varieties of experiences. And the process of exploring those is waking up. That's wakefulness. If you are a a, a woke person, an awake person, or someone with wakefulness, then you're someone who has an experience of a higher level. And I think actually woke, woke means something different. I'm not quite sure what that means. There's something in the culture wars to do with woke. If you're a woke person, you're a leftist? Something like that? I don't really know. I'm not really in the mainstream culture wars conversation, so I don't really know. I'm not clear on that. What I'm talking about is the the meditative person, wakefulness. That's what I mean by waking up. And then the... Growing up is what you say about it. The words, the story that goes along with those experiences. And that's, in a nutshell, why we have people believing in God. It's because people have experiences and then they say things about them. And what you say and what you experience ties in directly to what you believe. It's really the foundation of belief. So why do billions of people believe in God? Because he spoke to them, or more broadly, because they have an experience of him. Why do people disagree about good and bad, right and wrong, moral and immoral? Well, they disagree because of differences in paradigms and value spheres and beliefs. How come intelligent people delude themselves? For example, scientists who are creationists. And for this I've said all conceptions of intelligence are limited in scope. So to say that an intelligent person is deluded, it's really just a matter of words because you could say if you're intelligent, you're not deluded. You can't be intelligent and deluded. And another way of looking at it would be to say that, well, in this sentence, how come intelligent people delude themselves? The word intelligence only means a very narrow range of things. It's a very narrow definition. And in that case, well, you just have to look at what you mean by the word to answer the question. It's really it's really one of those questions that isn't, deep because it's not like you we're saying there's more to the question because we need to discuss the parameters and the things that it opens up 
It's really just that there's more to the question because you need to just define the words. And if you did that, then you'd have your answer. How can I be sure that I'm not deluded? And the answer to this is by contrasting thoughts with feelings. When something is clear, it feels clear. And when something is unclear, it's of the mind, it's of thoughts. It's delusion. And the thing that is always clear, the thing that is always there, we could call this a kind of personal resource, is your feelings. And to go from your feelings to your thoughts and back and forth and to learn to navigate those is to learn to see what clarity is. And of course, in that process, you see what delusion is. So another, another way of answering this would be to say, so, so the question is, how can I be sure that I'm not deluded? Another answer would be to say, to know what delusion is and non-delusion is, and by contrasting the two. So in my answer, I've assumed that feelings are non-delusion and the thoughts are delusion. So probably, probably I'd say the better way to answer this question is to say by contrasting things. How do I know that I'm not indoctrinated? In other words, brainwashed into believing things without thinking about them for myself. And the answer is by knowing when thoughts come from yourself. Now, there's a distinct difference between sharing someone else's thoughts and sharing your own thoughts. And this is called, in Buddhism, the insight mind. This is when you actually have an original thought. And it's something you can discover through meditation. It's something that you discover experientially. And just like contrasting thoughts with feelings <laughs> or delusion and non-delusion, what you discover when you start to have a bit of insight mind is that you notice the times when you're not thinking for yourself. You start to hear yourself saying things that someone else has said. You're thinking of things that someone else has explained to you. This is one of the follies of many teachers, particularly in the meditative sphere. 
It's that the, you need to learn to think for yourself. You need to not take the teaching on as something that you use for yourself because that's indoctrination. It's possible to be indoctrinated into a meditative tradition. It's very much possible. But yet there are differences because an indoctrination that is an, that is aware of how indoctrination works and is trying to actually push you away from that is very different to one that doesn't have that awareness. It doesn't have that self-awareness. If we can say that certain paradigms can be self-aware or not self-aware, that would be a kind of personification of a paradigm. Ooh, that's interesting, isn't it? What is science? Is it the best way of arriving at knowledge? And the answer is, science is a human phenomenon. And it is one method of arriving. And I've cut that answer short because I could have said it's one method of arriving at knowledge. But I think it seems better to say it is one method of arriving. Because, of course, there's no guarantee that science is a method that arrives at truth. There's no guarantee that it arrives at true knowledge, real knowledge. What are the limits of science? Are there things that science can't understand or explain? And of course the answer is yes. Science is limited mostly by its need for general consensus. And strangely enough, actually, that's one of its strengths. It uses general consensus to build something strong, to build something solid. That's the good thing about science, is that it requires general consensus. And yet it's also its limit. It's also the thing that holds it back. And of course we know now that there are things science can't explain. I mean, every, every scientist that has pushed forward in their explanations and understandings has always burst out of the paradigm of science and into other paradigms. It's just the case that it is. That's just, how, that's just how it is. And we can look at this word science in the same way that we look at God or religion. And we can twist it around and break it or mould it to different things and say, where do we draw different sizes to it, put it in different shapes. But that's just a trick of words. That's just what wordsmiths do. What is mathematics? What makes it valid? And, like we've said before, well, it's a phenomenon of the noosphere. And it's made valid by those who have an understanding of the phenomenon. So contrasting this with the question, how do you know what is justified? And we say, well, it's personal experience. Here, the opposite is true. Maths doesn't care about your feelings. 
Maths has nothing to do with the personal situation. You can't say, oh, this math theorem is true because I feel it and it resonates throughout my whole being and my whole existence. That doesn't fly. Maths is the opposite of that. Maths is systems, systems, systems. Maths is ultimately a rational phenomenon. And that's why we have mathematicians. It's a phenomenon of the noosphere. It exists in the noosphere. It will always exist in the noosphere. And it's made valid by those who have an understanding of the mechanisms and the processes and the dynamics of it. If you know how it works, you play by the rules, you know the rules, then you're a player. You can make something valid. What are the limits of mathematics? Well, this is another question that's like, whoa. What's the limit of the universe? Is it displayed by reality or projected by the human mind? And the idea of projection here is, it's not necessary, I don't think. It's... It, this, this is another one of those questions where you just say you need to define your words and you would find a very easy answer to the question. So ambiguity in definition does not mean that the question is profound. It doesn't mean that it opens up to something new. What is rationality? How does it work and why is it valid? Well, this is very simple. Rationality works with a three-step process of hypothesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And it's as valid as it is limited. Rationality is a clearly defined, simple, mechanism of thought. It's so obvious when you know multiple versions of thought or multiple ways of thinking or multiple uh, phenomenons how this is. And the definition is is just what I've said. It's a three-step process of hypothesis, antithesis, and synthesis. That's all it is. That's, That's all rationality. How it becomes complicated is, well, you can then turn your synthesis into another hypothesis. And you can turn your thin- you can contrast your th- synthesis with another antithesis. Just like you have binary thinking, which is one zero one zero one zero, right? One zero one zero. Well, what happens if you do one one zero one one zero or zero zero one one zero zero one zero one one zero one one zero one zero one zero zero one zero 
<laughs> or I can't even do that, right? <laughs> that shows my that shows my cognitive <laughs> that shows my cognitive limit, very limited cognitively, <laughs> very small pea brain. <laughs> that the same thing applies with rationality. It's just three way. So instead of binary thinking, it's a three way thinking, and it goes on and opens out into its li- limit. So that's rationality. I hope that's clear. I mean, it's so, I mean, I get tired of explaining that over and over again. It's really, and and maybe this is something we'll get to a bit later on when we explain, uh, like, the whole, how this whole list of questions is only one paradigm. It might appear to be, like, oh, it's got science, rationality, and mysticism, and metaphysics, and epistemology, and meditation, and these sorts of things. But really, you see, you'll see if we get through it, that it's that that all of this can only be can be lumped into just a single paradigm. So, next question: What is more valid, the senses, rationality? or intuition? And the answer is they all have their own unique role to play in the human experience. They all have their own flavors. They all have their own importance. What are the the biases and or blind spots of humanity as a whole? And the answer is fragmentation incompleteness and ignorance to name a few what are the blind spots of humanity unawareness unconsciousness rampant impulse behavior desperation lack of resource lack of security lack of cooperation neuroses misunderstandings fear My goodness, we could go on all day like this. And we could say the same as just from human understanding, not even just humanity as a whole, just just by understanding. Well, lack of information, input of information, widespread availability of information, of knowledge, of wisdom. It might seem like we have the internet now and we live in this age of technology and information, but there's still a limit to input. There's still a limit to collating the quality. Like information is not enough. We also need wisdom. And there's also still a limit to how much you can put in. There's only, there's only so many things you can read. There's only so many things you can cognize. There's still so much limit. And you could say, well, it's not only cognition that limits us. It's not just information processing. Humans aren't computers that information that process information. It's not like when you're reading, you're downloading the words into your brain. That's not what's happening at all. 
Right? That's really that's really a dark one. You can go into a dark place with that question. What are the biases and blind spots of humanity as a whole? That's a that's a really that's a really ooh yeah, let's move on. How do animals understand reality? And the answer I've put is through impulse, sensory input, and cognitive computation, which is exactly the same way humans do. And really, that's so limited because you could say it's not the right question. It's not a matter of how do animals understand reality. It's how do animals navigate reality. That would be a better question. And... That would really open up a bit more because understanding, understanding isn't isn't worth much. It's a very small thing. It's a very weak thing when it's put up against reality, right? If you if you're trying to take on reality with understanding, you're not going to win. You're not going to get very far. Whereas if you're talking about navigating reality, like if you say okay, I've got this huge thing called reality. How do I contend with it? And you say, okay, navigation is my thing. Well, that's very different. And you can say, well, how do animals navigate reality? Well, they've got their senses. They've got their things that drive them and all the rest of it. Next question. Are there creatures with higher intelligence than humans? If so, how can we be certain of our knowledge? And the answer is yes, there are humans that are also not human. And as we've discussed before, you cannot be certain of knowledge. Now, where we draw the line, the word human is one of those words that we can draw in different places. We can put a different shape onto it depending on our discussion. So when we say someone is not human, you can, I think everybody has, a, has an understanding of that. Everyone can get that. When you think of someone who's done a superhuman act, someone like an athlete or someone you admire or someone who's done some sort of feat or someone who's done some work that is of brilliance, of genius. That's the sort of thing that I mean when I say that there are people that are not humans. There are humans that are also not humans. Because the other side is that those super geniuses are not just super geniuses. They are also humans. Why is human knowledge taken as the ultimate truth? And here I've said that it's because of its utility. It's because of its use. And that's really just the times that we live in. That's really just how we are with our global culture at the moment, which is that 
everything's set for progress. Everything's set for production. Everything's set for the free market. It's the free market that reigns at the moment. And that's really what knowledge comes down to, right? And that's just because of where we're at. That's because of how we are. And it doesn't have to be this way. It could be that the thing that drives a culture or a time or an economy is novelty. And really, in a way, we do have things that are novel. We have things that are aesthetically pleasing. So this would be the, the artwork that just looks nice, right? It's not, it's not there for a use. There's no real use for art. It just looks nice. It's appealing. It makes life better just by having it hanging in your house. And really, that's why human knowledge is taken as ultimate truth. It's like the truth of the matter is what it does for you. If it's true, it, it has some use to it. It's got utility to it. And really it's so much of a it's so much of a stretch to break out of that paradigm. It's so much of a stretch to say that, well, human knowledge is is not the ultimate truth. I mean, human knowledge is in in fact the opposite from many points of view. When you when you look at an artwork and you say, is it true? Or you look at anything novel or anything aesthetically pleasing, you don't say, what, what is the knowledge that goes on with this? What is the ultimate rationality behind it? What is the reasoning behind it? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't really need that. It rings true unto itself. Now, of course, art also has its cultural implications. So you can have art not just for novelty's sake, but for cultural commentary. And that's different. That's a different kind of... That's, that's not exactly what I'm meaning to rule out. But to say why is human knowledge taken as the ultimate truth is... There's, there's an, an assumption in that question, which is that it is. It's really not a very well-worded question. Why is human knowledge taken as ultimate truth? To, to change it, we would say, well, I mean, you could say, what is the limit of human knowledge, right? We could make it like some of the previous questions. But to say that human knowledge is taken as ultimate truth, well, you'd have to say that it's taken as truth depending on what your idea of truth is. And I would say it's an, a limited truth. It's not an ultimate truth. 
ultimate truth is reality itself. And reality itself is there for novelty. It's for its own ascetic nature. It's not there for its utility. It's not there for progress. It's not there because of something. So that's a little bit about that. Next question, what is truth? Is it objective or subjective? And objective and subjective is a limited dichotomy, just as the mind-body problem and the antagonism between science and religion. Where does understanding come from? How can we rely upon it? And for this, I've said that it comes from cognitive adaptability. And we can rely on it by understanding it. I hope that's not too much of a mind twister. You understand, you, you, you rely on understanding by understanding it. So the Ourobora snake comes to mind. You remember that one? A snake that's swallowing its own tail. That's what's happening there. What is the ultimate truth? Well, it's right in front of your face, right now. You can see it, whatever you're looking at. Are you aware, are you aware of what you're looking at? And you sense what you're sensing right now? Are you conscious of what you're doing right now? Well, that's ultimate truth. You've found it. And all questions and all philosophy aside, it's been here, right in front of your face, for this whole conversation. What is the best way to acquire knowledge? And the answer is through perception, training, practice, and personal development. Basically, just to learn. And here we can differentiate knowledge and skill. So skill is the ability to perform something, and knowledge can be, well, for where we are in this conversation, we can say that it's just how you think about things or how you rationalize things. And even if it's the deeper knowledge of whatever is beyond mind, then you can say the same answer. It still applies, which is that it's through perception and training and practice and personal development that you acquire it. How do you acquire knowledge? By learning. And now we come to the last question for this section, and this is, is reality understandable? Can humans understand it all or not because we are limited self? And the answer is, it's not understandable, but it is overstandable. 
if you've done any work with non-dual meditation, then you can understand that. I notice that there's this tendency to have the answers collapse into the same thing. Can you hear that? Can you hear that's how we're sort of going through these? It's almost like there's a couple of things we can choose from and we just choose a different thing each time for an answer. And if you really go into it, if we really look at it, then eventually it's just like, oh, just like, oh, I'm tired. It's just any old answer will do. And this needs to be taken in a few different ways, I think. It's like you can interpret that by saying that, well, you just don't have the awareness or you don't have the consciousness to find the answer to the questions. You're not philosophically strong enough or you're not philosophically deep enough if you're just getting lazy with your answers. But I don't quite buy that. I don't know if that I, I I don't know if the limit of the mind is any indication of the limit of awareness. I don't know if they're things that can be equated to each other. Consciousness does not necessarily mean big mind. Does not necessarily mean well, more realistically, the ability to talk for a long time about philosophical questions. So, those are a few thoughts. <laughs> those are a few thoughts that are bouncing around as we are making our way through these. So, next section, let's get into it. This is about you as an individual. Let's do some of these in rapid fire. How can I be sure that I exist at all? And the answer is, the same way you know you are dreaming when you are dreaming. Have you guys done any lucid dreaming? I'm thinking of putting together a course on lucid dreaming. I'm going to get all the techniques that I've gathered and all the things that I've discovered with lucid dreaming and dreamscape exploration together. Look out for that. Probably, by, Maybe by the time you've heard this, it will be out. But it hasn't happened yet. It's still in the process. Next question. If I exist... What am I? Biological? How do I know? And the answer is, you are everything. And you find this by finding what you're not. Or you know this by knowing what you're not. How did I 
aka the identity of me or the ego come into being? And the answer is all beginnings are incremental. What justifies identifying with the body or the mind? If the body is yours and the mind is too, who owns these things? And the answer is the witness. And the witness is an entity which is as easily as identified as the mind and the body by meditative practices, by the contemplative path. And it's just a basic sort of ABC thing that you discover on your meditative practice. This is a, I guess this is a question Leo's put in there, like for the new kids or for the, the ones that are not very, the people who are not very experienced, because of course Leo understands this, or at least I assume he does. And that's why he's asked the question. If I am the body and the mind, what is everything else? Where does I stop and the rest of the world begin? And the answer is that this point that he's alluding to in this question is sitting on an ark. This point he's referring to sits on an ark. And it's not entirely fair to say that you are the body or you are the mind. That's an assumption there. There's an assumption under that. What is in control of my thoughts? And the answer is yourself as far as you are aware of what the self is. What is my role in reality, my purpose? Well, your role in reality is defined by action, doing, and personal propellance rather than what comes from being as you are. Because the the being version of this question would be, what is my place in reality rather than what is my role in reality? So your role in reality is what you do and your place in reality is what you are. And the other side of your purpose would be your quality. So your purpose is defined by your personal propellance And what you are is the inherent qualities that you have that are within you. And the last question for this section is, how should I live my life to maximize happiness? And here I've written or I've said, live with totality. And this is an idea that I got from Osho, 
It's one of the things that he talks about. It's one of the things that he goes on and on about, actually. Living with totality. Whatever you do, go deep into it. Go into it with all that you have. Really go for it. And when it's over, it's over. You don't need to do it again. Or you don't need to go back unless you feel to. Because totality means going into something fully and also going out of something fully. So I really like that. I really like that word totality. And I get that from Osho. If you listen to Osho lectures or you hear him explaining meditation techniques or awareness techniques, then he very often uses the word totality. So, next sen- next section, I believe this is the last section. So, we're getting there. We're getting through it. It's a long list. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. 64 questions is a lot of questions. And this section is on consciousness, the mind and all mental fabrications. So you can see in that that it would appear that Leo has not fully clearly differentiated thought and consciousness or the mind and consciousness. But here goes with some of the answers to the questions. What is consciousness? Consciousness is the light. How is perception possible? Perception is possible by the coordination of everything in existence. What unifies our senses into a seamless experience. There is only ever one unity until it is disrupted. Another answer to this would be to get into ego theory or stages of ego development. What if there are higher levels of consciousness? What would that mean for our understanding of the world? And quite simply, it means there is more to find. There is more to discover. There's more to unfold in your story. And of course, there are higher levels of consciousness. That's the answer to what if. Or it's the, the, the other side of the thought experiment or the presupposition. What about the different levels of consciousness? For example, psychedelics and meditation. What do they mean? Are they better, worse, 
more or less real than ordinary consciousness. And the answer is that they are different in quality only, which can't be devoid of value. Now, this thing is tricky because the words, within the the delusion of the words, you get your answer for this one. Because quality and value, these are our, our two key words, they go hand in hand. But you need to understand the two opposite versions of those definitions, of those words, of the definitions of those words. Because quality, when you say quality, well, that's used in sales to mean that it's good quality. When someone says this is a quality product, they mean it's a good quality. But the other definition is what are the qualities more like, what are the properties? What are the things that make that thing that thing? That definition of the word quality. So what are, what are the qualities of a pillow? Well, it's soft, it's fluffy, it's made out of wool, it's used for sleeping on, it's about the size of a pillow. Those are qualities of pillowness. But then we also have what is the quality pillow? Well, it's a good quality pillow. And then we have value and they have different definitions within that as well because we can say value is just what someone will pay for it. You see that in sales as well. This is good value usually means it's a low price. It doesn't mean when you buy that thing, you're going to have a lot of use from it, from it and therefore really feel good about that. There can be something that is a low price, which you don't need. You don't value it. It's of no value at all, no matter how cheap it is. So within these two words, quality and value, we get the answer to this question, what are the different levels of consciousness on psychedelics and meditation? What do they mean? Are they better or worse? More valuable or less valuable? And the answer is they are different in quality, which can't be devoid of value. Are consciousnesses separate? Or is consciousness one thing? And the answer is relative selves are separate, but ultimate self is one. Can artificial consciousness be created? And the answer is no, but artificial self-consciousness can be. Can consciousnesses be split or joined? And this is simply just absolutism and relativism, as we see in the question, are consciousnesses separate 
or is consciousness one thing? Could inanimate matter be conscious? And the answer is yes, but not self-conscious. Actually, Sam Harris brings that up in his book, Waking Up, where he says, is the sun conscious? And if it was, would you expect it to start talking? Is consciousness only accessible to higher level beings or is it everywhere in the world? And here I've come back to this distinction between consciousness and self-consciousness. And I've just said that consciousness is everywhere, but self-consciousness is not. And now we come to the last question. What are the laws governing qualia, which are the qualities of the senses? And my answer is the qualities or the laws governing qualia or the qualities of qualia are directionality, desire, propellance, and we have behavioral factors such as survival, hunger, avoidance of the void, avoidance of death. And we have sensational qualities which is interaction with the surrounding environment, pleasure, energy, emotion. And really the list goes on. The whole thing opens up. I mean, we can talk all day about the theory of the senses. And really, if we were to bring this back to the personal, we'd say, well, it's, it's, poet, it's poetry that really has the, the final say on that question. The laws governing the senses are the things that happen within you when you are sensing something. And when you really sense something, you're connected deeply with reality. And when you're doing that, you're, you're using poetry to express yourself rather than theories or properties or laws or any of this sort of scientific mind kind of talk. And really, there's probably better answers we can come up with for that. It's probably, there's probably better even versions of that question, rather than what are the laws governing qualia, we could say, what is your experience of qualia? Or we could say, how could we collate the full range of human experiences or human qualia equating for everyone's different experiences? We could say, are all experiences unique? Are all sensory perceptions unique? That's another way of looking at it. That's another interesting thing to get into. 
another angle to it. But that's the list. We made it through. My goodness. I don't know if my answers are really satisfactory. I think <laughs> I think some answers could do with more fleshing out, more thinking over, more research, more references, that's for sure. And I hope that offers up a little bit to just saying that there are answers out there and that, of course, they're not limited. And really, it comes back to how this is a sort of back and forth game. It's an ongoing thing. And if you get it, if you've, if you've got the philosopher bone in your body, then you, you get it, right? You know how to go back and forth and you see the... I mean, there there is also a frustration to it. Like, oh, oh, because when you go into it, you, you see, you see all the limits and you see, oh, I haven't thought about this. I don't know about this. And then it doesn't make sense. And it's like, oh, what? Oh, how can I do this? No, this is an answer. And then I hope... I hope I haven't done too much of that. And I also hope that it's not like, oh, oh, this is the answer. Like what started as <laughs> what started as a kind of cheeky, quick, smart aleck answer and sort of slapstick answers has turned into like, oh, I I don't know. And and I'm trying to convince myself that the answer is good enough when really I know deep down that the answer isn't good enough. There's really more to the story and maybe that's the only way that we can answer all of these questions is by saying that there's always more to the answers that are given than what is given and i think that always applies i mean that's how that's how we arrive at mysticism through philosophy that's how we arrive at poetry through knowledge that's why we are brought to certain realms of existence when we go through certain things, such as philosophy and inquiry and questioning things. And that arrival, that's the point of it. That's the whole point of it. And you can only arrive at that point by going through it. You can only get to that point. You can only have that experience by by having it. I know that sounds like a too much of a tautology, but it's true. You can only have the experience by having the experience. And actually, there's a form of philosophy that comes up or a form of sort of mysticism explanation where answers become exactly the same as questions. And you can hear people say this. They say things like love is love or a rose is a rose truth is the truth truth alone is the truth these sorts of things these sorts of phrases that's when someone's reached that point and they've gone through it and the whole thing's turned inside out the whole thing's completely burst open and they see the humor of it they see the joy of it <laughs> i don't know i feel i mean i feel cheeky i feel a bit humorous but i also you know, I got a bit of confusion in there. There's still a bit of, I mean, I wouldn't say confusion, but think things that could be more neat. I know there are things that could be better. So maybe that's just my own personal development that I need to work on. Something to reveal. It's revealed something then. So 
Uh, <laughs> I've come to my own questions. So I've only got 10 questions. And I hope that by hearing my questions, you can see how Leo's questions are still quite narrow. There's still a lot more that can be broken out of from this sort of questioning. And everyone has their own way of seeing things. Everyone has their own way of asking questions. Because like, again, at the start, what questions you ask reveals where you're at. It reveals how you are. It reveals the sort of things you're into. So everyone's at a different point. Everyone's into different things. So here's the questions that I've come up with, sort of sort of in response to Leo's questions. So it's a bit contrary. It's a bit sort of rebellious. But I hope you enjoy. So let me ask these questions. And what I'll do is I'll ask them, but I won't answer them. So we can do this as a kind of meditation. We can kind of do this as a guided contemplation. So if you can, just become quiet and prepare yourself to see how you respond to these questions. So just relax your body a little bit. Take a few deep breaths. And just tell yourself to be open to these questions. Tell yourself not to be too quick with the answer. And notice how these questions hit you with your experience. Not just in your thoughts, but also in your body. The temperature of the air around you. A feeling on your skin. The weight of your body as it's on your feet. Or your legs if you're sitting. And just be present with the atmosphere of the room. Anything that might be happening around you. And just listen to these questions. And allow your response to come from your being. Where is the point of no return? Where is the point of no return? When you give it up, where does it go?
when you give it up, where does it go? When the weight of the whole world is on your shoulders, what are you standing on? When the weight of the whole world is on your shoulders, what are you standing on? What is the connection and the difference between image and location? What is the connection and the difference between image and location? When is there smoke without fire? When is there smoke without fire? How does the moon feel about the sun? How does the moon feel about the sun? Can you take more than you give? And or, can you give more than you take? Can you take more than you give? 
And also, can you give more than you take? What is a rhetorical question? What is a rhetorical question? What are you forgetting? What are you forgetting? How can you surrender to love? How can you surrender to love? So those are some questions to contemplate. Those are some of the things that I've asked, perhaps a little bit abstractly, to just get into different areas, to get into some different things. And I hope you can sense that they're quite different from the ABC philosophy questions. They're a lot more pointed, a lot more ambiguous. And really, when we're getting into these sorts of questions, we're getting into contemplation as a practice rather than a philosophical exercise. And the difference is when you have a philosophical gymnastic movement or 
gymnastics of the mind, you're really just coming up with more thoughts. You're coming up with more ideas. You're coming up with more explanations. And that's great. That's very important. But really, to go beyond that is to get into the experience. It's to really find those things that are broken out of the mind. They're broken out of thoughts. Things like, for example, what is a rhetorical question? Like a rhetorical question is, in a sense, a thing that is meant to push you into that. And it's funny that the word rhetoric, it's, it's funny that the word rhetorical question means what it means. Because originally, rhetoric meant philosophical conversation. It meant the ability to talk about philosophical ideas and have those discussions successfully. To be able to speak clearly to be able to really explain things and go into all the different sides of things. That's rhetoric argument or rhetoric conversation. But the other side of it, or the further side of it, is that all of that rhetoric, all of that conversation was meant to bring you to this point where you just go, up, oh. and there is no answer. And in that tiny space, in that tiny moment where there's no answer, there's no mind. And that's what the rhetorical question is sort of hinting at. And of course, I've asked it here in a way which is meant to be the thing that it is. I've asked, what is a rhetorical question? Not for an answer, but for that, for the effect that it brings. In a sense, that is a rhetorical question. The question, what is a, what is a rhetorical question? That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> which actually brings us nicely back to the mystical answer to everything, which is truth is truth, love is love, existence is existence. <laughs> In a funny sort of way. But that gets through all of what I had in terms of the questions. And I did want to, I mean, I did think I would say a few things about Leo, the man himself, because I had this episode previously on this podcast called I'm Worried About Leo. And I released it a while ago. And... In a sense, I'm still worried about him. I'm still... I'm still just like... Well, I'm in two minds about it because... I mean, he's just one guy out of many that I've looked up to and learnt from, right? He's really just one out of so many. And he's by no means the most important to me. He's by no means who I would call the most brilliant or the most... Uh, I mean, he's interesting, that's for sure. He's by no means the most clear or the most heartwarming. And really that gets to it, is like, what's the problem? And 
The problem is his seriousness. The problem is his preachy, forcing, ramming it down your throat delivery. And it says a lot because his delivery says a lot about him and where he's at. And I get the sense that he's very much caught up in his mind. And he's forgotten a lot of a lot of very important things, like he's missing certain things that he should know better. Someone with his intelligence and his experience should know better. There are certain virtues that he... It's just non-existent. It just doesn't come through. Now, they might be existent in him. He might be aware of them and he's just not bringing them through. It might be that. We only see the talks that he does. But things like... Things like playfulness, things like celebration, things like dancing. Dance is not a knowledge. Dance is not a question. Dance is not a philosophy. It's not an explanation. It's not a reason. It's not rational. And of all the things that we might call beyond mind experiencing, perhaps dance is the best example. When someone is dancing, when you see someone dancing, that's the answer to everything. There are no questions about it. And, it, and it's just extraordinary to see someone dance, to see someone in their element. They dance so uniquely. They dance totally. It's a really, it really comes back again to totality. And dance is a celebration. And a further side of this would be music, right? Is music philosophy? Well, the answer is no. Music is magic. And you could say, well, it depends on what your definition of philosophy is, because you could say philosophy is a kind of magic. And these are things that I don't know if Leo is seeing. And, and I worry. I mean, I feel, I feel sad. I feel sad about him because I got so much out of his talks. I got so much, like it was such an important part of my journey. And I was so happy to see him opening up and finding all these new things. But then to realize and then to see that, you know, recently in the last year or two or even a while, he's remained serious. He's remained in a sense, closed. And it's because of his big mind. It's because of his intellect. It's because of his, well, basically because of his neuroses, which he can't see. And maybe the fame and the success is part of it. Maybe that's gone to his head. And that's part of it too. That, like, that's really something to contend with. Like to get, to get that much attention, to go from where he came from to where he is now is... Like, I can't even imagine. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. 
to have that much success, to have that much attention given to you, and to have that much blown into the words that you're given. And I'm, I'm quite free of that because at this stage, no one's listening to me. I don't have an audience at all. There's no engagement. There's no feedback. And there's a good chance that there's, there's quite simply no one listening at all. And that's, that's a freedom. That's a joy that I actually cherish. That's a kind of purity. It's actually something to celebrate. To not have something can be an immense thing to celebrate. When you dance, you don't have a mind. When you dance, you don't have a worry. When you dance, you don't have an identity. When you dance, your body is free. There's not a restriction at all. When you dance, it is the most profound thing. And of course, I mean real real dancing. I mean the, the truth of dancing. You can just have a little boogie, and that's one thing. But I'm really, I'm really talking about the core of the deepest, most profound astonishments of dancing. I mean dancing as the be-all and end-all act, not just the dance of, oh, I'm just having a little boogie or a little shake. And not everyone knows that. I mean dance, not everyone can see. Like to really... Like, like some people don't even have a boogie, right? They don't even have a little shake. Rather, not like, and that's that's only a a step towards the profundities of dance. And really, uh, I wish, you know, I wish Leo could dance. I'd love to see him dance. I'd like to dance with him and laugh. And see that he's lightened up a bit, just relaxed a bit, and not being so serious and not beaten up the people that have listened to him in the past. You're not going to be able to help people by beating them over the head and telling them how ignorant they are and talking about how complex the ideas are. And how near impossible it is to become conscious. Like that whole that whole feeling, like you can you can see how that's a like as I'm saying those things, it's like I'm being sucked into it. And I can understand it. I mean, there is a darkness, there is a hopelessness to it. I'm not seeing the world through rosy eyes. There is so much unconsciousness, there is so much hopelessness, there's so much pain and frustration. But we don't need more examples of that. We need encouragement. We need examples of lightheartedness. We need examples of celebration. We need examples of people who can come back to the heart rather than the head. We need people who can stand up and exalt feelings to the glory that they should have. And I wish we could celebrate more our differences. And I'll never meet Leo. He'll never, we'll never have that circumstance and he'll never listen to this. And there's no advice for 
what you're doing if you're a fan of his or if you've never heard of him. If you're a fan of him, well, great. I can understand that because there's great stuff in the way he speaks. And if you've never heard of him, well, you don't really need to because there are so many people in this world to get to know. Unless, of course, you are open to every person in which you should check out everyone. Be open to everyone. Openness. How important is that? Openness. And really, I'm, I'm, I'm just worried about him. I just wish he would lighten up. I wish he would relax a little bit and see the joy. Come back to joy, Leo. Leo, please, just be happy. And it's easy for me to say that from where I'm sitting. So who am I, really, to comment on someone else? This is just my reaction. And really... In so many ways, what I wish for Leo, I could extend to my wish for everyone. Can't everyone just be joyful? Can't everyone just relax a little bit? Can't everyone just be a little bit less serious? And of course, myself as well, right? (laughs) I need to work on this myself. You can all see my track record for how serious I've been and how dark and Tied up in my own knots I've been. That's on record. All of that is on record. But those are a few thoughts in response to Leo, who has come up with the 64 most fascinating questions, which we have discussed today. I won't say that we've answered them, because these answers aren't final. (laughs) That's for sure. We've discussed these questions, so I hope you've enjoyed. I hope you've enjoyed my questions as well. Maybe you can answer them. If you come up with answers, let me know. I'd love to find answers to the questions. Where is the point of no return? What are you forgetting? (laughs) There's a lot of answers to that question. (laughs) That's for sure. So much I'm forgetting. Okay, we'll wrap it up. Have a beautiful day. Continue to meditate. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. I don't say that too often anymore. I mean, I used to say that every episode. Maybe I'll say it again whenever I feel to. And I've remembered to now. So if you are enjoying these episodes, please do share it with someone you feel would enjoy it someone who's ready to hear these sorts of conversations. And thanks again. Thank you, thank you. Big love. And that's all I have to say for now.